Hello, everybody, and welcome to Joyfully You podcast. I am your host, Kelsey Lowe, and today we have a special guest. We have June Sindesi here. June is the founder of Sindesi Wellness Center. She is a two times nutritionist and gut specialist. She is a trauma and emotional relief counselor, and she is currently offering emotional and trauma relief sessions personalized nutrition detox sessions, and emotional eating and customized nutrition plans and programs. Uh, June and I were able to meet through the World Wide Web of Instagram. And June, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so excited to be here. I so honor you, Kelsey, and how you show up so fully, courageously, and unapologetically authentic for your fellow beings, friends, and um, the women that you support around the world. So it's just an honor to sit here and know that we've sit in, we've sat in very similar places in Costa Rica with similar friends and family there, soul family. So it's just so crazy to meet. I feel like energy never lies. Oh, so true. It is so wild that we have so many mutual friends, especially in Costa Rica, because Costa Rica was such and forever will be just a land that facilitated so much healing for me and self-discovery. And so energy doesn't lie. Amen to that. (laughs) So I would love to hear, you know, how did you get started on this journey of working with people, being a gut specialist and like the emotional eating side, you and I are, are fellow sisters in the sense of our sensitivity to the world. And, you know, so I would just love to hear what's been your journey of, of being, of doing what you're doing now. So if I'm not loud enough, please give me a thumbs up as we chat. I think it really started early, early when I was four and five years old, I told my mother I had tigers scratching at my belly and they started taking me to gut doctors. They put cameras down my throat. Um, I had in kindergarten, a picture of the inside of my stomach I was showing for show and tell. And they had taken a bunch of pictures and they said, you know, we don't find anything. We think she has extreme anxiety. And I mean, every household has their little ups and downs. And I was blessed to be in a mixed home where my mom had been married before and my brother was my brother. I never saw him as a half brother or stepbrother or anything. He's just my brother. And so growing up, there was always a couple different things involved with mixing our family. And um, my brother was my greatest protector. And he went to boarding school when I was little. And that was a really hard moment for me because I thought he was being sent away because he was bad. But everyone is telling the story of the truth differently. So my mom said, no, he asked to be sent away. And, you know, I didn't know what was going on because I was four or five years old. But I started to believe if I acted out, or expressed in a way that wasn't favorable or desirable, I'd be sent away and I couldn't take care of myself at four years old. So I started to really hold in my voice and I started to have throat issues when I was young too. Some people who see the correlations between, you know, symptoms of dis-ease and um, emotional, you know, kind of reality would see that because I was almost seen as a strep throat carrier. But back to the stomach issues. I think one person, many people are telling me different stories, right? Therapists, my parents, aunts and uncles. 
So I never say one thing is truth because everyone's experiencing something differently. And my parents know June experienced her childhood the way it was. It might not be the truth, but she uses the way that she experienced the world to empower others. So we all like honor each other and in my family. And I'm really grateful for that. Feel very supported by them. I had one story told to me that the doctor told my parents they needed to go to therapy. And they were like, we don't need to go to therapy. You need to fix her. She's got stomach issues. It's her. You know, and a lot of times when the kids are expressing, you know, kind of um, distress, it's often that um, the home is not able to kind of manage or curate or, you know, kind of relieve some of the feelings a child's having, especially if they're in their nonverbal years. You know, if their neocortex isn't developed, they can't verbalize what's going on or contextualize what's going on. So my parents were doing everything they could to find doctors, to find different people. And they kind of gave me these placebo pills and told me I had silent reflux. And so I was so proud of myself when I was young. I'm taking my pills like my dad when he takes his vitamins and this is all going to go away. Um, and as I got older, I love kind of relating it to the brain, the reptilian system, you know, connected to the vagal nerve and the, the lower abdomen, the gut feeling. Um, and then the um, limbic system, the emotional brain, and then the heart, and then the neocortex, which is the rational mind and the logical thinking and all of those things that go on. And I think I was on the playground or somewhere. And I wanted to fit in with the kids. (laughs) So I started to go against my gut feeling, but also my gut was already speaking out with the tiger scratching at my belly, but also my heart. I stopped trusting what I felt was right instinctually to fit in, or I got my heart broken and then my heart felt like it was lying to me. So I stopped trusting my heart and my gut. I started to desensitize from these areas and only trust my rational mind. Well, my dad and my uncles and a lot of people are surrounded by growing up were great businessmen. And they always said a great businessman doesn't just look at what looks good on paper. They choose to go with their gut instinct. So I think what happened was I stopped trusting my, um, my gut and my heart. And I started, and we know through brain science and through all of the nervous system research coming out that our body's intelligence lies in our entire body not just our, you know, neocortex, our newest (laughs) developed brain. But I tried to think about everything logically and nothing was ever making sense because it wasn't matching up with how I was feeling. And that's why today I do a lot of um, this nonverbal and um, like kind of emotional discharging because a lot of things are coming from that place that We don't quite know how to um, relieve because we can't put words to it. So Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk, different neuroscientists, only in the last 30 years have started to prove that we need to really address things, not through talking, but by feeling, learning to feel bigger things in trauma therapy, which is the route I'm going down now. And so what that led to is me starting to pull my hair out because I was starting to have so many big feelings that I couldn't put words to that this feeling of pulling my hair was a stronger feeling to distract me from learning how to feel big things. And my parents were doing their best. And I, and I chat about parents, not to chat about my parents, but to chat about the family dynamic that goes on where you see your parents kind of rushing, rushing in circles, trying to find the perfect medication or, you know, change things in your lifestyle to help you. 
And my mom and my dad and I have the most incredible relationship now because they know the calmer they are in their nervous system, the more I'm going to be okay. But also as I've aged, I know it's not about them setting my nervous system. It's about me setting my nervous system. And as I went into college, I, um, you know, they say like the freshman 15. For me, it was like the freshman 35. (laughs) (laughs) For me too. (laughs) So I joined this dojo and I was learning brain training and Qigong and martial arts. And one of these, um, at that time in my life, I really believed, okay, if I follow a guru or somebody that inspires me, somehow I'll become like them and that will take me out of my nervous system, which I don't any longer prescribe to because I have to investigate and to get to know my nervous system and what works best for me. I can't try and become someone else to think that will relieve me of my pain. But one of the masters there, the Tao masters told me, you're looking fat which was so interesting because I always had this little body I loved and trusted. And I remember when I had gained like five pounds and I was looking at my belly like, oh, I've never had a belly. This is exciting. I like this. And I was playing and then, but I respected them so much. And I had little self-worth and insecurity. When they told me that I started binging, you know, 2A, 3AM, you're like, where am I? I'm in the kitchen. I've gone through jelly and peanut butter And just kind of, you go into this like frantic, like kind of scarfing down mode because you're spinning. I was spinning with thoughts and others might relate to that feeling of how did I get here? What's going on? Mm -hmm. And that's when I started really about seven years ago training. I was more like 10 years ago, but I'll say seven, this awareness training really starting to, you know, be able to expand the gap of like, okay, I walk to the ice box. I'm at the bottom of a pint of ice cream. How did I get here? Start to really expand that awareness. And so through that um, awareness training and then starting to train in the um, gut biome and microbiome and nutrition, paleo, vegan, learn all the different scientific nutrition research around the gut. And we know that it has to do with our precursor to hormone development as well as neurochemical development 80 percent of serotonin is made in our small intestine so we're seeing the gut uh, brain link which makes a lot of sense because our gut brain is older than our our brain <laughs> you know like the hopio sapien brain so of course the the microbes and those bugs i've even heard this new research that it's not what we eat but what the bugs inside us eat and they discharge or their waste is what actually makes the chemicals. So, you know, if we're feeding these toxic bugs, their waste is creating my neurochemistry. That really freaked me out when I heard that recently, but (laughs) almost at the end of the story about three years ago now, I was really kind of that person hadn't adopted this idea wherever I go, there I am. And I was um, producing festivals for seven years. So even before I got really into the brain training um, and retreats, and I was kind of living a really fast paced lifestyle, thinking the more I do, the more I achieve, the more awards I get or recognition, um, which I had started to gain being honored at the UN for mental health youth uh, kind of award around the world, like all these things on, on paper, it looked like I was on the top of the world, but internally I felt I could never do enough. And I remember I was hiking after I'd produced a retreat at a conference for doctors. And it was like a highlight of something I was so excited about. The next day I went for a hike and I was thinking this thought, 
after there was like a rock slide and other things that happened trying to avoid that, if I could be like my friend who's ahead of me in her career and be 10 years ahead of where I am, then I could be happy. And that moment, my mind went away from me and I missed my step and I fell 25 feet. And I broke my back, my ankles, concussion. It was a scary moment. But luckily, because I believe in miracles and angels, I had service in a place that has no signal somehow. And I was, you know, rescued by some friends. And sadly, the, them rescuing me interrupted like a wedding. And it was a wild, wild moment. But that moment I was bedridden and I had to see I had been crying years before in the tub around how ugly I thought I was and how fat I thought I was and how I wanted my belly to be different. And then I was laying in the tub and I had so much nerve damage that I placed my hands on my belly and I couldn't even feel my belly underneath my hands. And so I really started to shift what I valued around my body image because of that experience. And I started to see how, you know, one moment I might value how I look on the outside, but it's really how I feel and, and relating to my reality on the inside that is the true testament of how I'm going to make a better life. And that is one reason I struggle a little bit with social media and a lot of this portrayal of the body, because I know in one moment in growing up wearing wigs and you know shaving my head and seeing how people thought I had cancer related to me differently, um, it doesn't matter how skinny I was. If I can't feel my body because I have nerve damage, you know, I was afraid to walk around. If I bump into something, I couldn't feel it. And I wouldn't know how deep it punctured me because I couldn't feel my belly or my bum, you know, things changed. And so my prayer is that we start to train our awareness more as, as a species so that we don't have to take such hard, painful hits to start to change and to start to go, um, more inward. So that is my life story, long winded. <laughs> and I'm so excited that I get to share with you and, and hear wow. your story as well. Oh, wow. June, thank you so much for sharing that with me. And just, it, I got emotional too, just how well and eloquently you express all of that and the things that you've experienced, especially the moment of like, your mind being trying to be like, I'll be happy when, and that 10 years in the future, missing a step. And we had kind of talked about uh, on other calls together, that process of healing from your back injury, like causing you to slow down, well, forcing you really, right? Forcing you to slow down and look at different things. Um, you know, during that process, what is it that, you know, you could see clearly now, but you couldn't see then, you know, for maybe other people that are in the process of healing something in the body, but it's kind of a trust process, you know, without really having definitive answers as to when and how, um, what has it kind of been your hindsight clarity, being able to look back on it, um, that you didn't have then that you have now. In terms of the way that I was, um, processing and valuing myself myself work mm -hmm. of why I missed the step or what it's been like as I've healed um either either one I mean especially the self-worth part because I think everyone has something that they don't share about that causes uh mental emotional distress it, yeah. it causes this feeling of 
maybe I'm flawed. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Um, you know, how have you recovered from that? Or how, what's been your process? Well, I'll speak to first what's on my heart and, and go back to that part about that thought that I had then. Um, actually, I'll speak to the thought that I had that moment. So I am often watching myself in this recovering perfectionist comparing mindset. And I see a lot of people and we've been told, you know, if you have a lot of people that follow you on social media, which we don't know in a day or two or five years will be a completely erased. Their entire livelihood will be erased as well. You know, and a lot of other things like that. Um, friends who have hundreds of thousands, millions of followers. And then I know their inside story, which I didn't used to think about wholly like their wholesomeness, that the whole story, which is like, some of them don't know where they're going to sleep tomorrow because they're traveling so much. And some of them, you know, don't have a really great relationship with their husband. Um, and some of them are still fighting eating disorders and all these things. And so I have in this life to work on a lot around recognition and how people view me. And if, is that going to be my self-worth? And what I had to really look at is, you know, I, I use this idea or analogy of like, am I growing into a rhinoceros or a giraffe? And, you know, some of my friends who are like giraffes, they can eat a certain way and they have certain skill sets, but then I'm never looking at like the skill set of a rhinoceros. And it's really funny because over here on my wall, I have a lot of collaging and my partner Sterling and I were drawing like <laughs> what animals would we be? And, you know, me, like I need a dragon head with like a horse body. And, you know, we're talking about the values of why do these, ant you know, and he wanted like a rhinoceros body. And I'm like, why? And he's like, because they're tough and they're some of the oldest animals. And, you know, so what I haven't done and what I continue to do and what I hadn't done enough was look into my gifts, my genius zone. What do I really need? And I needed to learn about gentleness and slow pace. And I needed to learn about, we talked about my, my lifestyle growing up, which we can get into as well. I needed to learn about um, a lot of different things that work to set me into my genius zone. And I didn't start to really investigate what those were while I was busy comparing myself to everyone else online. And I do know from my childhood, I, I will share now from growing up in being on private planes or wearing $10,000 jackets and all this stuff that I see on social media will make you happy. I saw these people on the private plane, not talking to each other because they got in a fight because of what the limo driver said, you know? And so it might sound crazy, but their inability to manage their own internal world and love their partner. To me, my value is, you know, how I'm managing myself, my health, how I'm managing my relationship, how I'm managing my business and how I'm interacting with people so that I can manage relationships well. And for me, that takes not traveling a lot. I can travel maybe once a month, but what it takes for me to reset is a lot. Some people, I have attention deficit as well. I was given lots of drugs and tested for lots of things. I had to have extra time on tests, all that stuff. Um, and I like can struggle. I struggle with moving around a lot and um, kind of uh, readjusting. I can't do my best work. And I used to get mad at myself about that instead of looking at what are the conditions I need set for my best work. And then, wow, I'm starting to enjoy my life more. So it was never really investigating me. It was always investigating externally um, someone else's dream. And that really 
I just found disappointment after disappointment that I couldn't become them because I didn't realize the formula was I wasn't interested in becoming me. Mm -hmm. And um, for me and my journey with excessive eating, excessive hair pulling, which is a body focused repetitive behavior disorder diagnosed as, you know, what takes us from my mentor, Christina Pearson, who started the first scientific advisory board and network of scientists and therapists for body focused repetitive behaviors, excessive skin picking or, you know, ripping your skin or pulling hair. She, she's like always saying what takes us from a normal grooming to an excessive, you know, what takes us to eating it normally to excessively. And so looking at the brain science and the nervous system research around that and how to regulate has been an interesting journey for me because I chatted with a client the other day and I'll mix a couple of client stories to keep privacy, you know, excessive masturbation, excessive eating, um, or sleeping around, you know, and the shame around these things. When I expressed to her, like, what if this is your biology doing its best to regulate your system? You know, for me, if I pull my hair and get stuck worrying or if I eat um, a whole cake, that's one version of reality that I'm experiencing. But then I can literally shift that version of reality, getting up from the couch where I'm eating the cake. What I used to do when I excessively ate, it was more than five years ago, I would be in the tub and I would eat like a whole pizza. (laughs) And I would pretend like this is a photo shoot, but I was really like hating my life. Um... I would get up from the tub and then go sit on the balcony and then put a meditation on. And all of a sudden, how is that? In only two minutes, my experience of reality has changed. My value has never changed. No matter what people have done, horrible things to themselves, to others, our value never changes, in my opinion, my spiritual belief um, or my spiritual languaging. So it's really what I'm choosing to do in my reality. But I thought what I was doing in my reality wasn't just changing my experience of reality was changing my value and worth. And I've changed that belief. Now I believe no matter what I'm doing in reality is changing my experience and my nervous system and my, you know, thought patterns and what my thoughts are generating, but it doesn't change my value. And I don't believe it changes anyone's value on this, this podcast that's listening what you do, but how you want to start experiencing your reality more. And um, my friend on, well, my best friend deleted her social media and all these people started texting me, is she okay? Is she okay? Because they didn't see her posting on there. And she said, it's really nice not looking at other people's lives anymore and investigating my own. And I said, good for you. Mm, wow. Yeah, that's huge. Especially when it, it is designed to kind of breed comparison with things. Um, and it's so beautiful how you put it of like the value doesn't change for the person. And when we start thinking about it as our body, mind, body, spirit, all of the elements doing its best to survive the moment, to experience the moment. And sometimes that involves the disassociation of it. We can have more of a, a loving perspective of like, Oh, I was doing the best that I knew how to in that moment. Like, did you go through a forgiveness practice or ritual or like, you know, like to not hold, because something I've noticed for my, because I'm also recovering perfectionist, like um, recovering procrastinator too, out of like fear of it not being enough. So I would procrastinate and put it off. Um, 
I went through a lot of like forgiving myself then because I'd be like, oh my gosh, how come I didn't know that then, right? Even through the journey of uncovering these different layers of like, oh, this is what happens to the brain when I'm meditating. Oh, this is, oh, I can meditate, like learning how to do it. Because I used to think I'm not the type of person. I'd rather just go, go, go. Like I'd rather do something, you know? Um, And it, it was almost like a deeper layer of healing of being like, okay, just because you know it now, just embrace that you know it now. You don't have to then sh- add additional layers of shaming yourself for shaming. I was shaming myself for not knowing it soon enough of like, oh no, did I create destructive damage that can't be changed? Because for me, my uh, compulsive, my impulses was around smoking, where I would disassociate with weed or cigarettes or food, like just different types of ways of uh, um, indulging. And the way that I always thought of it in the past was like, oh, I'm looking for a sense of pleasure because I'm not guiding it from my present life. I'm looking for something to bring my sensitive soul pleasure, you know? And so it's like the slowing down has helped. And then also just the emotional regulation of, of my foundational beliefs about myself Mm -hmm. of like, I am loved. I am worthy. And like all of those, when I like creating that foundational state for me. um, And also there's a lot of somatic healing. You know, what you were talking about, it being stored in the body, you know, and I think that was the big thing that was a mind opener is sometimes you, I don't understand what's happening, even though there's physical healing um, and energy release happening where ecstatic dance or um, breath work, where all of a sudden I start bawling, crying, and I could feel the energy leaving my body and I could feel the trauma leaving my body. And mentally, I can't explain it, but everything is changed and how I'm feeling after. Um and so what, what has been your process of, of, I guess it's integrating, I guess that's my question. How have you been integrating this knowledge that you continuously learn with having the experiences you've had in the past? Well, some research that I've just learned for this trauma training I'm doing, going down this route of um, degrees and certification and pairing that with the nutrition um, certification and work I'm doing is that so what we're seeing in the brain now is the amygdala signals um, on a sensory nonverbal level is this you know a fire is this danger and it goes over the hippocampus which is like a bridge to the um, neocortex to the front of the brain and it, then once it gets to the neocortex, the front of the brain, we know we can rationalize. That's a snake or that's a stick. But what happens to a lot of us, it doesn't always have to be trauma. We can just be hypersensitive people. When we're receiving a lot of input, light, sound, all of these things, a household that we don't know if someone's going to be explosive or not, and we need to run in our room and hold our little binky, um, what happens is the amygdala starts firing a lot. And it's going over the hippocampus so much, but what happened to kind of, then we rationalize, this is safe, this is not. What happens when we're constantly in a flight or flight, fight or flight state is that the amygdala gets turned on with a lot of people who've had a lot of trauma or have been overly input saturated. And then it starts to wear out the hippocampus and then the hippocampus kind of breaks. And so when I heard this new research, it really interested me because What that means is that it takes me a little longer um, to know if 
if this is a threat or not, what I'm experiencing, to be able to rationalize, you're fine. And so we do this judging and we're constantly stuck in, I'm not safe or I'm not good enough or this is going to end badly with some of these examples you mentioned. And what happens to a lot of us, the way that we build the, the hippocampus back is by novelty, doing new things. But a lot of us who have been traumatized or, you know, have hard, you know, me, I was scared to go hiking because I didn't want to fall. Just I was scared to walk <laughs> because if I fell, I had the numbness and then I would hit something. I wouldn't know if I hurt myself and I'd be bedridden longer. And the society of the more you do, the more you're valuable rather than if you're breathing and being God still got work for you to do. Um, so it's been really interesting to see that we used to have this idea I have to learn this for the exam, localizationism. One part of the brain does one thing. And then if it's broken, you know, you can never fix it. But now we know neuroplasticity is a thing so that we can retrain ourselves to have new experiences of reality and heal. So when I know this, I know as a trauma survivor, the last thing I want to do is do new things because that could put me in a place of hurt or, you know, pain. But that's exactly what I need to do to build this trust bridge of the hippocampus, the amygdala, and the prefrontal cortex. So it's really been interesting to think about, you know, the aversion to try new things when I don't know how they're going to go. And I'm so used to judging myself, thinking that how I do on them is going to then equate to my value or worthiness. Um, and so when I know that, oh, my brain is just taking a little longer because it's like constantly worried and, and it's not knowing how to assess that fear sensation as um, rationalize it as like, that's nothing to be afraid of. And we know now looking at the adolescent brain until 26 for males um, and 24, 25 for females, our, our neocortex isn't fully developed yet. So we're not fully an adult brain rationalizing things until after 26 and what's interesting is the, um, the the adolescent brain is so much more interested in thrill seeking and trying things, and it doesn't have a lot of rationalizing. Like it needs to lean on adult brain for help me see the cause and effect of this. So I feel for a lot of us who feel like confused, but it's actually our neurology development, um, and I've definitely been there. I'd like to use an example of um, a client that let me use this example where, you know, she's feeling a lot of input because she's highly sensitive and she's been hurt and she's in the bar and these girls look kind of bitchy or that they're not going to be very kind. And she's had some hard things happen in her past in social situations and she struggles with social anxiety, just like I have, because there's so much input going on and it's overwhelming and we kind of just want to hide. So she said, I ended up being the bitch. I didn't even give them an opportunity to be the bitch. I was the bitch because I was trying to protect myself. And I hated that about myself, June. And when one session, we literally laid on the couch and we really learned how to just tell the body it's safe and feel the body and feel the parts that are holding the pain and tension and fear. And then I said, we're starting laying down and then we're going to go to sitting and then we're going to go to standing and then we're going to go to talking and we're going to retrain the nervous system to feel that it's safe while we're in any kind of situation. And we're gonna start to learn different regulation skills and tips for the nervous system while we're out in public so that it's easier to communicate. And by the end of that session, she's like, I'm on top of the world, I'm going to the bar right now. You know, I can do anything. But it's, it's sad to me that we weren't taught 
we're given so much pressure on how to fit in, fill out the right box on the test and, you know, make the teacher proud, make the parents proud, get the scholarship so they don't have to work and bake their backs more to send you to school or college. But we're not taught how to regulate our system emotionally. Gabor Mate is big in the trauma research and did a great lecture uh, on YouTube. You can find it how, you know, uh, our emotions affect our cognition. And he was trying to tell these um, these high school professors or teachers, you know, he didn't say it in these words, but I was teaching mindfulness to kids in middle school in the Bronx and some of the lowest performing schools. And our um, trainer said, you know, how do you think a kid that's dropped off in the carpool line and their parents take them by the shoulders and are screaming at them because they're angry by, about what they did in the car and telling them they're a worthless piece of shit um, at seven years old able to go into a classroom where they can't move that energy out of their body and told to sit down and perform on a test. How do you think their fight or flight is activated to begin with? They're not able to calm themselves down and then sit and, and access their linear, you know, a linear part of their brain or, you know, to rationalize or, you know, grab information because they're probably tense. So they're not able to access all that they can to really perform well on this test. So I have some frustration that at an early age, we're not being taught to regulate our system. And I've been doing some fun mother-daughter mentoring where I'll do like eight sessions with the daughter and four sessions with the mom around uh, managing the system, you know, in the early twenties or teens, because it really changes how they have their interactions with their friends, how they take heartbreak, how they, you know, perform at school. Cause we aren't taught how to manage our emotions and it, it correlates to our performance, it, you know, completely affects how we perform and how we um, operate in terms of all the linear functions and emails. And we live in a very linear world that we have to um, perform on. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. And it's so true with that feeling of safety and so interesting too, that example with school systems and like with a child that, you know, when the fight or flight's activated, but then the way that we're taught in the school system is everything is graded and everything needs to be done a certain way. There's that cookie cutter way of approaching um, education. Um, I'm curious, like about, you had kind of mentioned your childhood of like growing up, having it, being riding on private planes, like, but then at the same time, there wasn't a lot of emotional intimacy, even though the material things, you had everything that you needed. Um, can you kind of elaborate and kind of share a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting to share because um, at least the way that I was brought up, and it's very odd to me for, for what's happening in the social sphere uh, of what children are being taught to value. And the, the age group in the 60s and 70s, they, they aren't being as affected um, you know, as the young minds are of so, with social media. And, and one thing that this psychologist that is leading the trauma training with these 40 professionals that I'm in said that, you know, in social media, we're every three seconds having a dopaminergic squirt. And it's very hard for children to focus in classrooms because their children cannot supply that amount of amazement. And there's this odd, you know, kind of duality going on with how children are being taught to focus or what to focus on or how 
their interest, you know, or attention is waning because of the social media world that, you know, a lot of people in their sixties and seventies can't really relate to, but being raised and having in grand experiences as I did, you were taught, like, you don't take a picture of this. You don't talk about this. Um, this isn't like who you are. This is just an opportunity you have. This is something you're experiencing, but like if it was something really luxurious, you were taught not to take a photo of it. Yeah. Because Mm. our value is not that what we value others for. Um, what I was taught to value others for was their character and how they took care of like my dad, he'll like cry when he hears about like one of my friend's dads who, who's a carpenter and like built the homes and the furniture in someone's house because of how much he values hard work. And a lot of their parents were in the depression. My father's grandfather was one of the kids who was thrown out of the family onto the street during the depression because they didn't like him and they had too many mouths to feed. And so I can see, you know, in his genetics, you know, if we talk about spiritual lineages and, and things like what he was to purify to become, um, you know, there's financial wealth, there's emotional wealth, there's all of these different things to really work and, and provide because I'll never know what's running through him in terms of scarcity and trauma. Um, and so it was really odd to me when I saw these girls posting these champagne photos or private plane photos or, you know, Ritz Carlton photos or these types of things. Cause I, uh, I was like, that's not their value. That's not what you're supposed to post. That's not what you're supposed to talk about. That's like, those are things that are like transient. You know, I watched people whose, you know, lives were changed in 2008, you know, they went bankrupt and, in public, people are trying to ask them, you know, how, how's things going with, we know you lost your business. It's the last thing they want to talk about when they're taking their family to dinner. You, you know, it's like really odd. This whole money conversation has always been very uncomfortable for me personally, because, um, you know, I had relatives say like, how could you pull your hair or have depression when you have all of your um, basic needs met? And then I felt like even more of a failure personally. And I've talked to other people that might not have had extravagant upbringings, but had the same things, you know, you have it better than I had it. You can't complain or have, you know, any emotional disease when their dis-ease, their uncomfort or their issue is where their gold was, that child's potential was, you know? And I think a lot of parents feel like, okay, I'm a primate trying to raise a human or like, I'm like a wolf trying to raise this human child. This child feels so different than me, like a different species. How do I activate their potential and skills? And I was grateful for my parents' humility. They had, they were like, we don't know things like help us. They asked for help. And, and, um, and so that is where I get a little confused. And, and my partner like makes a joke. Like, I think you kind of resonate sometimes more 50 or 60 year olds, June, with like wanting a little farm and like, you know, like my goal is like to look out the window and watch my children playing and feel the water running on my hands as I, um, as I wash dishes and feel the sun coming down on my face, because then I'm very present for what I'm experiencing. Cause I've experienced such a life of, you know, exciting, luxurious things. And then my thoughts are racing and I can't even enjoy the caviar I'm tasting. It sounds so cliche and like I hate that I just said that out loud but it's so no I I, it honestly reminds me of this Jim Carrey quote he says like I wish everyone could become rich and famous so they can realize it doesn't bring happiness and joy 
it's like that feeling of people, it's so people want what they can't have. And when we are sold a lie on social media of people portraying this happiness because of it being related to a luxurious lifestyle. I mean, we've even seen now like this kind of a comical thing of people renting out this corner set up studio space to look like a jet to take a photo in and then you step off. Yeah, they have them. At, I saw it at an airport where it was this corner space. So it looks like a jet plane and you can pay $50 to sit down and take your Instagram photo. So it's just like encouraging and perpetuating this lie on social media that is translating a belief of I'm better than you or you're not good enough. And so it's kind of cool though, hearing that you were raised in an environment that authentically was like your parents valued hard work so much and they, you know, the decision that they made allowed for a type of lifestyle that was, sounds really beautiful and incredible, but their humility around, this is not who we are. This is what we have. That's what I'm hearing from you is like that. So it, I can understand why it would be confusing to all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, why are you guys sharing those things? And I feel like the people that share it the most that are super loud about it. I feel like there's oftentimes, and obviously this is just a personal judgment. There's oftentimes an inauthenticity of the truth. And that's why it's so loud. Yeah. I mean, for me, I've seen people where it does bring them joy. You know, I, I've seen people where they, they, I can't ever contextualize someone's experience of reality. I can yeah. speak to my own. And so someone sitting on that private plane with $10,000 pair of shoes, some, like, I don't know what animal they're becoming. I don't know what their brain chemistry is. I don't know what light source they came from. Like, it might be in resonance that I've made it. I'm here. I can relax. Mm-hmm. Or they've sold their business and they buy a little cottage um, in the Outer Banks and they can relax. Like, I don't know what their struggles have been, but I know that social media is selling us a lie um, that when you get there, then you can be happy because that's what I did. And I thought I needed to move to Israel and that I'll give an example. Um, I, around the time of my accident three years ago, really wanted to move to Israel because the values that I thought that I would seek and experience and live there would be work to live, community, a lot of music, a lot of like gathering together, working together, um, just a slower pace of life. And I chatted with, I love the form of nonviolent communication, the uh, communication skill set, like compassionate communication for working with colleagues in work settings or working in how you speak to yourself or your partner or your family members. She said to me, a mentor, you know, what are the needs you're trying to get met there? Um, in Israel, if you were to move there? And what are strategies that you can find now to make that happen? And I said, the things that I just shared with you. And and then she said, because what if you move to Israel, you move to a kibbutz where they do like campfires and they sit around, they sing every night and they're slow pace. And I went, I've lived on a couple of kibbutzes. One was a dairy kibbutz, um, which is kind of like a commune way of living. And you were sitting, I was working as a doctor's assistant that is the time doing research for her in the little home that I was in then. And you were just staying up till 11 p.m. working every night because you could never do enough. And your friends invite you to go out, but you say no. 
Hello, beautiful, and welcome to Joyfully You Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Organifi. Organifi is my go-to green juice that I drink every single morning, and your girl is not a routined person. I like to switch it up. I like things to be spontaneous, but this is the one thing that I look forward to drinking every single morning. It has 16 different superfoods. It takes me 30 seconds because I could just mix the powder in with a cup of water and drink it. And it puts my body into an alkaline state. And so what this does is allows for optimal health, okay? And so it is incredible. I highly recommend it. I wouldn't be um, allowing it to be a commercial and a sponsor and taking up time on Joyfully You Podcast if I didn't wholeheartedly believe in this product. So if you use the code KLOW, K-L-O-W, you will get a discount on any Organifi products. And there is a link in the show notes. What if you were there still living that reality? And that was real for me because I probably would have moved there and been too busy with so much that I still hadn't gotten done to experience life. And yesterday I was doing the same thing. It's a work in progress. I'm sitting in the car. We're driving into Sedona where we live. And my honey's like, you can close your laptop for this. People pay lots of money to come here. This is something I'm still working on. Um, Close your laptop and take it in. You know, I had to finish one more thing. But what happened was (laughs) a couple of years ago, I decided to do that. I decided to get a little job two nights a week where she was looking to create an event space. And um, I started to call musicians and artists and we started to create an event scene there. And it's something I had done in the past, but I knew that my maybe festival days running a big, you know, um, campground or like fairground setting was over because of my injuries. I was worried I could never do that again. So it was just a small little kind of coffee, chocolate shop. And we started to create this huge communal scene that still goes on now. I'm not working there anymore. And I met my beloved there and my life really changed. My life completely changed. And my charge, my yearning, my reaching to go to Israel left me because I created that need now. And another Mm -hmm. mentor told me, we've been sold the wrong thing. When I have, then I can do, then I can be. But what we really need to do is be, then do, then have. And a friend of mine who's a great person in the community who gives so much, who um, sometimes says, I can't believe in a trailer, but I'm as happy as I could ever be. He said, we're sold online. Have the Chevy, be free and be happy. You know, you know, you know, live free, do. And and so he's like, those are the commercials, right? The Chevy will give it to you. Well, I know a lot of men who bought very expensive cars and they sit in there very unhappy. So (laughs) It's just funny to me. And it's a constant thing I'm working on because I think we we teach what we need to practice the most. And I told you the story yesterday that I still am tug of war with it. And I'm a work in progress and I still struggle where I get stuck pulling out my hair. But that doesn't mean that I don't still have gifts and skills that I can offer. And I think a lot of us you know, we're closet door. I've, I've known people who have had relapse of um, alcoholism and had to close their psychiatry practice. They get a handle on it again. They open up their psychiatry practice a year later and they still help people. I mean, I think we need to stop kind of, um, there's a word like idealizing that we're going to make it. We're going to get there. One day we're going to make it. And a dear mm-hmm. friend of mine told me, because we meet different famous people or different things happen, you know, I stopped trying to be that young little girl that thought someone was going to save me or I'm going to make it if I meet someone. They'll, they'll do the work for me. 
and just started doing the work myself. And I think that is really important for people to hear that right now, you know, they can like my partner and I during COVID, we've, we've been really feeling all the pressures and the fears of the future of the apocalypse of this or that, whatever. Yeah. We're like, how do we create our Eden now where we are now? You know, we might want to have like a little eco village one day, but what can we do that we do on that eco village here in the setting Mm -hmm. that we are? How can we create that now? And I, and I challenge people to find strategies to get those needs met now, even there, if they're in a studio apartment, um, there's a way, there's always a way. There's always a way, always a way. And I love that of, of asking, what is it that I'm wanting that I think will bring me happiness and how can I create that here and now? That's so powerful and so necessary. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about gut health um, because I think that is something when I first started learning about it being some people got the second brain, some people got the third brain that the heart's the second or, you know, but we have these different brains and how you mentioned, I think you said 80% of serotonin is created in the small intestines. Yeah. There's all new research coming out, but I can stick with 80% about, yeah, a large amount. That's our our happy hormone. Um, you know, I love that idea. My friend, Caitlin Turner, I wish I knew her Instagram handle, um, said like, we're as different on the outside as we are on the inside. And it's so real. And there's um, Dr. Braverman's work came out of like helping in doing research around Alzheimer's. We'll do these kind of um, tests around. We've got like, he says, four main neurotransmitters that govern our personality, acetylcholine, GABA, serotonin, dopamine. And everyone has a different amount that they like present in their brain, a different amount of dopamine, a different amount of acetylcholine, a different amount of serotonin or, you know, GABA that then is their genius zone. And so like one of my little brothers, he'd be like a total high dopamine guy, high acetylcholine guy, um, but low GABA guy. And I'm a girl that's like a high serotonin girl and a high um, acetylcholine girl. Acetylcholine is like vaccine information and interested in those kinds of things when I'm doing those kinds of activities. But then the serotonin joy and creative aspect of me, I feel really fulfilled. And what is GABA? GABA is that calm, steady, timely aspect and dopamine dopamine is that person that likes to jump out of planes and you know like the adrenaline junkie yeah and so people have low dopamine don't like surprises Mm. (laughs) or prefer to have low like less dopamine secreted you know and so I I haven't talked about his work in a little while but it's impacted how I approach you know when I do these nutrition programs I've really wanted to add in um working with trauma and that's why I I've now titled them as emotional eating programs, but I'm, I'm doing also like three month programs of just emotional work. Some people don't want to do any nutrition. I'll usually make this big map. I'll send them like a blood type test, a food sensitivity test. We'll look at their metabolic type, their blood, um, their genetic kind of ancestry, what they were near, you know, if they're, they grew up by the sea and didn't have a lot of big animals in their, in terms of their, ancestral line you know like a blood type a you maybe don't do as best you don't have as many antigens as well as enzymes present to break down um beef or pork um or you know dairy products and so what i i like to look at is a very customized um panel 
of where someone's at. And what I'll do is I'll put all of these food lists. I'm lucky, my incredible, um, dearest, beloved assistant magic friend um, helps me with this too. We'll put all these food lists of what they should eat if they're blood type A. We'll look at their food sensitivities, which will be different. And then we'll cross-reference them all and make a, um, a preferred diet for them. And um, I just find such a customized approach is important because, you know, you might carry a sensitivity that is giving you the brain fog or the indigestion or the constipation that isn't your blood type. Um, you might have a history of um, alcohol use that has overtaxed your liver. So we might need to do some support for your liver regeneration, like the naturopathic approach of really making sure that organs are functioning properly so that they can um, support the digestion. And so digestion really has to do, and as well as metabolism and what you're eating, your nutrients with your hormone um, development as well as your neurochemical development. So that's really what I like to look at, what symptoms are present, your brain fog, hormone symptoms, you know, not able to lose certain weight also has to do with emotional charges and emotional baggage that you're carrying. Um, uh, like 80% of the women I work with have had sexual abuse. So working with a lot of that as well, because sometimes I felt it too, carrying extra weight is kind of sometimes like a a barrier. Don't get too close. Mm -hmm. Don't get too close. I'm not ready for intimacy. Um, yeah. And so discharging some of that helps the weight start to come off and make different choices. But what I'd love to talk about when it comes to nutrition, especially is the new research that also is only about 30 years old around the female metabolism versus the male. And that a lot of women before the 1990s weren't included only 3% now they are saying are as included. Um, in studies due to birth defects that were happening. So when they started including them in studies, they'd only include us during the infertile time, which is only two weeks out of the month. So that means half of the year, we don't know how these prescription jugs are affecting us, <laughs> which is so funny to me. Um, and it's no one's fault. You know, who wants to see birth defects when they're trying to make scientific history or a revolution, you know, like when they're trying to find drugs. Seems really important stuff to leave out though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Our entire, thing. you know, so the females, uh, neurology metabolism has really been left out of the research and Elisa Vitti, um, Christian Northrup, many other women are pioneers in this work. Elisa Vitti would say, you know, male and female sign up for, uh, the same gym membership, the guy gets ripped, the girl doesn't. Why? And so there's a lot of research that's been done that's just coming out now around how we are metabolizing differently due to the fact that we're the baby carriers. We're here to procreate. And our uterine lining and our development of our follicle, you know, um, because we're here to to be fertilized has to do with how we're going to be metabolizing to prepare our uterus for if we're fertilized or not. And so that changes how we're metabolizing throughout the month and how we should be exercising throughout the month as well. That if we exercise on our period, like a hit exercise or sweat really hard, we're used to the moonlodge, like species wise, developmentally, mm -hmm. evolutionarily, we're used to the moonlodge or red tent times that the women, the men 
honored the women's part of society. They would say, you're going to the moon lodge. All right. We know that you might receive some visions, like tell us if invaders or attacks are coming, tell us where the Buffalo have gone. And when they'd come back, they'd tell the men and the men would, they would listen because they honored each other's gifts in society. But they also knew the women knew they'd be protected during this time that they could go, they could bleed, they could release and they were safe. If we're running you know, because we're doing a hit workout because we want to be like these girls that we see that are photoshopped online. Um, there, there's an issue there. We should not be running <laughs> while we're bleeding because we know now that our bodies are actually making twice as much blood. We don't just lose blood. We have to use more energy to make and twice as much blood is pumping through. And um, we really need to let our bodies release. But if we're running during that time, our body's gonna store fat because biologically we think we're being chased by a saber tooth tiger. Also in our fertile years, we have to have a more subtle, soft body because we're supposed to be being able to procreate. A lot of people don't know these models and fitness gurus that I work with do not have a period. And that is our fifth vital sign. What do they ask us? Our temperature, our pulse, our you know respiratory rate, um, and then how, when was your last period? But men don't get asked this. You know, if we don't have a period, there's something we really need to address because that has to do with your endocrine system. That has to do with your hormone system. That has to do with your energy, your metabolism. There's some things that are really off there that is a fifth vital, a vital sign. And so a lot of people don't, don't understand that. I'm working with someone who's been in the Pilates industry for 50 she's 50, but 30 years. And she's worked with professional athletes, dancers. She doesn't let people exercise the first three days of their period because she knows there's a luteinizing hormone that makes us more available to injury because our uterus has to expand to release the blood. So she's like, these women, I, I commend you, June, working with women in weight loss and nutrition because these women have it all backwards. She's seen the weight loss industry. She's seen the athletic industry. Anastasia Barada is her name if you're looking for a great um, Pilates and myofascial trainer, connective tissue trainer, if you have issues, that the bodies are supposed to be softer during this time. And if they're harder, there's actually an issue. You know, having these ripped abs like the guys have in the uh, sports athletic, you know, like bodybuilding world is not actually best for women. <laughs> we need soft, subtle bodies and our hormones are trying to allow us to have softer bodies. And so, you know, you pulled a card, Aphrodite, you know, these bodies that are soft and fluid, um, we want them to be able to expand and contract, you know, having five pounds of water weight or whatever happens for people, you know, they, people like fluctuate five to 10 pounds during their cycle. This is normal. Yeah. Girls that are starving themselves. It really frightens me for the fertility of our future, because um, if you're starving yourself biologically, that means this is not a time to reproduce. And these women are frustrated <laughs> with not being able to get pregnant. And there's some reasons there. So I, I love to just spin the perspective on that, because especially after my accident, not being able to feel my belly due to nerve damage, my entire view of my body has changed and how I want it to work for me and what I want it to be able to do, which is to be able to carry a child one day. And, you know, also these things of like knowing with your partner sexually, when your woman is in a dry phase versus a wet phase and a certain, like before your period, you're in a dry phase. So your biology can't go zero to 60 and you might need your, your, my partner has read some books with me and he knows like, that's the time that we take more time. We don't, 
put these expectations on ourselves. But the issue is that we've been told we have the same biology. Women have a circadian rhythm, but they also have an infradian rhythm. After your period, you're going to have more energy because you're growing a new follicle. If you're not on pharmaceutical birth control, your body thinks you're pregnant. So that's a whole nother conversation we can have about your metabolism and biology and how to address it there. But your infradian rhythm is telling you to work a little differently than your circadian rhythm after your period. You're going to have more energy. You're going to be able to stay up later and work on projects. You can sleep less. When you ovulate, your brain is, our brain we can see is acting differently. Your um, different hemispheres are lit up so that you can talk more eloquently and express yourself in a different way than when you're bleeding. You know, the left and right hemisphere communicate. You have more ability to kind of analyze, reflect, and it will change how we also operate our lives when we know what parts of our brain are active. And so that's also what I teach women around the different weeks of their cycle, how their neurology is changing, metabolism is changing, exercise should be changing, and we shouldn't be expected to be men. Of course, for people who identify as women um, or are going through transgender processes, I honor that world and I haven't been as educated and one day might be on how to support them as well but to embody a female way of being is to live cyclically like the earth. There's, you know, fall, winter, spring, summer, and our biology is mirroring that. The, the man who wrote the Whole30 that took over the nation doing the Whole30 diet, Dallas Hartwig, has just released a lot of research around. Um, it's called The Four Season Solution. It's a book. He's re he's written really released all this information that he's gathered over 30 years. Whole 30 was just a part of it around how we actually need to work out and eat cyclically as men and women both. Um, mm. And how men, like if they want to have a certain kind of body, they need to work out differently in the winter than the summer. So this, this way of eating, exercising, um, working, how we're working. He was expressing that as well for men and female due to the seasons, the amount of light that's being secreted into our brain. Um, since we lived before electricity, certain things we're prone to do and we're going to be better at during different seasons. Um, I'm very interested in, in, interested in cyclical eating and, and individualizing for each person that I'm working with, their gender, their genetic history, their microbiome, their depression, their anxiety, all these things have to do with how we should eat, exercise, sleep, and work, and how we might need to rearrange those things. That's so interesting. Oh, I love this stuff so much. It is so interesting, especially the like all the stuff about cyclical living, because it's definitely changed my life. I've been off any type of pharmaceutical birth control for like five years now or so, you know, and there was definitely some fear around it going off just because I was so programmed growing up in the United States that that's just what you do. And that's the smart thing to do, quote unquote. Um, but my entire body changed, like even physically it changed. My, my periods change, you know, I have three day periods now instead of seven day periods with excruciating cramps. And I used to go into a depression every period I had because I also just, I felt like shit. So then I thought like shit and then I ate like shit. So it was just this, you know, cycle. Um, so hearing about someone else that's, that knows all these details about the cyclical living and is teaching that like, oh, I just, I honor you so much, the work that you're doing in this world. Um, 
I have quite a few friends and quite a few people that listen that have shared that they recently have gone off birth control or that they've just made that decision. Um, what are some tips or things that people could do to help, you know, embrace cyclical living, embrace that transition of getting off birth control? Yeah. Bringing a child into this world is a very big responsibility. So I definitely believe that people can live cyclically if they haven't done the amount of work to um, get off pharmaceutical birth control. It is doable. And I would say, though, if you aren't used to tracking things, tracking your um, your eating, tracking you know different things, that's going to be where you'd start. You'd start learning your cycle, you know, the first day that you bleed until you bleed again. Usually 26 to 34 days is how long a cycle could last. A lot of people say 28. It depends on the woman. You start by getting to know your body. You start by smelling your blood like any primal species will do. <laughs> you know, you, you smell your blood. You get in touch with, is it sweet? Is it sour? You get in touch with your cervical mucus, which is, is it stretchy, which means I'm very fertile? Is it sticky, which means it's creating a barrier that sperm can't get through? We know that five days prior to ovulation, you can ovulate 14th, 16th day, depending on how long your cycle is. The cervical mucus gets thin and the acidity changes so that sperm can survive in there. So the fifth vital sign is a great book to read um, to become educated, but tracking, you know, the infradian um, rhythm, but also there's something called the fertility awareness method where you track your temperature with a basal thermometer after you've slept for three hours or right when you wake up. And that will change when you're about to ovulate. You know, a lot of people do this only to get pregnant, but women had to do it before there was pharmaceutical birth control for regular birth control. You check your basal temperature, you check your cervical mucus and you check, you know, what your day, what, what day it is. Um, and if your cycle has been changing and chat to someone who's a fertility awareness, um, instructor, facilitator who can teach you how to get in rhythm. But what we know now is that stress can change when we bleed. So people think it's always a dense form of matter what we're eating or if we're sick or, you know, the, cere the cervical mucus, like, or the blood, these are, these are correlators. If we don't know how to manage our stress, we can change when we ovulate because our species doesn't believe that we're safe to be fertile. So this is something to really, you know, keep an eye on. And just cause you learn about, okay, my cervical mucus is thick during this time. Um, that means sperm can't get through. If you're not looking to bring a child into this world, my friend Molly always says, she says a prayer. Um, you know, if I'm to bring a child into this world, the time is not now. So be very intentional with what you're doing when you're having creation time. You know, you, we, we use like the words, these are our creation centers because penis or vagina, sometimes there's all these stigmas there. And what are we choosing to create with each other if we're not creating a baby? And that, you know, wearing a condom, Sustain is a great brand that's non-toxic. It is latex though, but it can actually fit very large penises. Um, a lot of other condoms like Durex, even though I believe that's non-latex break, wearing a condom and pulling out. I, I mean, if you're really looking not to get pregnant, 
do these things for a male, you know, that is a whole other kind of training. Um, my friend, Kevin Oras talks a lot about sacred masculinity and I really, as a male, you know, suggest that you learn about being able to, you know, pull out and be, being able to, you know, really connect to that part of your light center because there's light that wants to be given. Um, and most importantly, as females, we need to heal our mother wound. We know in utero, we are experiencing what our mother is experiencing. We know that if our mother wasn't quite ready to have us, she might be having some resentment or some fear that we're carrying around having a child one day. And that might be some things that we need to resolve. We know that when we're in utero, if our mother is stressing, we need to give our energy to survive to the host. So at an early age, I think my own experience when my mother was stressed was I learned to give my energy away, not to take energy in. And then that became a pattern um, with how I overextended myself as I got older, because I thought in order to survive, I need to give more instead of receive nourishment. And so that's wow. a thing. So that is so interesting. Yeah, there, I think there's a documentary in utero, Jake Gyllenhaal's father made, and he's also created, um, Franz Rupert is an identity development psychologist from Germany. And the Identity Development Institute, I think Jake Gyllenhaal's father started in LA, which I've done some training around. And it talks about how, you know, how we formed our character um, due to what we experienced from utero into our family dynamics. And so I think it's extremely important in my own experience of being a fertile woman to look at the relationship we had with our mother, what our mother told us about her life experience of what happened to her when she had kids and how she might have lost her whole life or hated her life. Other, many mothers have different experiences of what becoming a mother is. And then we took them on as females of what it would be to be a mother instead of changing our story. And that's very important to embrace our fertility, to embrace our responsibility. I had to mourn and cry like, I have this responsibility of being someone that's fertile. I can't just rely on pharmaceutical drugs that wreck my microbiome and my brain chemistry. And I have many other issues from because I can't trust myself for taking on this responsibility of being someone who, you know, and so I also say like, if you're going to have sex, be very transparent with whatever partner you're with. Like as adults, we get STI testing done together and also test for HPV. Cause you can only test that in the, um, the urethra like of the man he actually needs to be swabbed it's not something that's done on a normal um sti panel which one in four women have hpv and that's something to look at too with stis and and know that we're exchanging information i used to carry a silly belief you know some people say you have sex with someone once you carry all their karma you have to cleanse it all and a womb um and like uh kind of uterine specialist I was talking to said you can carry that or you can let go of that belief and you don't have to carry that belief it's really wild what women carry and believe that they are responsible for what enters their womb space and so really rewriting your story about what it is to be a mother what it is to be a woman what it is to have that power and responsibility of creation what it is to take care of your your womb space and how that affects your neurology and metabolism is really important. Um, but 
stress is something that I'm really seeing will change when you ovulate, um, change when you bleed, because bleeding is an inflammatory response. You might bleed sooner or later. You know, a lot of people don't bleed while they're traveling because they're, they're species, the, the primate that I am doesn't feel like I'm settled in a safe place to bleed. So um, these are very important things to consider, but the emotional piece is very important to heal with your mother, the mother wound around the uterus. Mm, that's so, so, oh my gosh. So like many valuable gems in everything that you've shared. Like I know for myself, I'm definitely going to be going back and listening to this and taking notes of some of the things, all the resources that you've shared. You've mentioned so many different books and studies and movies and articles and things. And so I'm just so grateful for the wealth of knowledge that you have around cyclical living. This is so interesting because this is not the type of information that is often readily available. It's becoming more, um, requested because people all of a sudden are starting to question certain things of, well, why have I trusted my doctors for this being the best choice? Oh, well, because that's just what everyone does. And it's like that, the, the group thing that happens, which I think we both, I think have grown up with parents that didn't fear the world. So we transfer that belief of being able to travel, see different ways of being different cultures, um, and it's, I love that you mentioned the mother wound and how that relates and how like it's, I'm still like, oh, it's so interesting about how we learn to either take energy in or let energy out in the womb. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, my mother and I are always healing together. You know, I think what we see as our curse in the interviews I do on the Syndacy Wellness Podcast one of the questions I always ask is how do you see your sensitivity as a superpower rather than a crippling force? Dr. Christie used those terms that I've adopted. And what we can see is like our kryptonite, like my hair pulling, that's a very female characteristic, long hair, you know, being female antennas relating us to feel, you know, it was maybe I was like 27 years old. And my mother and I were talking and I was actually bleeding during this time. And she gave me two hours uninterrupted because she's a doer. And she said, you're allowed to cry or big feelings are okay. Something like that, which she had never said to me, but we both did our own work. And I just started bawling because we're not given, you know, the woman is the one who is trained in the, the feeling area because she lives the seasons. And we're supposed to train boys. I don't think, you know, I don't like this whole go feminine, like rising feminine, you know, kill the patriarchy because we women raise boys. So we better tell our boys you're allowed to cry. We better tell our boys that you hold space for a woman to embody fully because a broken man is not able to hold space for a full woman. And so yeah. my mother has definitely become more of a space holder of feelings, but I didn't have to wait for her to become that, to become that myself. It's not about feeling better. It's about getting better at feeling. And so I think this work around uh, female biology is, is very crucial to something that looked like my kryptonite. I was three brothers. All my cousins were born, born in a Jewish um, setting where the boys got to do special things in the religious ceremonies that I couldn't. And I wasn't explained. You live the Torah. If you learn about your female biology, you don't have to read it 
you don't have to in the men, you know, in the sweat lodges and a lot of, you know, Crow Indian and other Indian ceremonies, the women weren't allowed to go in the sweat lodges because it was supposed to resemble the womb. The men don't release. So they need to go in there. I was talking to my friend Jai. He's like, whenever I want to get out of the sweat lodge, I'm like, my mother gave birth to me. I can do this. You know, women have to go through the releasing every month. And so I really damned the fact that I was female and I didn't see the gifts in it. And so I'm working on that. And I'm, and I think we teach what we need to work on the most. And I'm doing uh, this lecture now that I'm offering at different summits and webinar um, kind of retreats that's called the Mysteries of the Female Biologies Re Revealed because um, it's something I really need to continue to do deep work on myself. That is so cool. I'm so interested in that. I'm like, I'm like, okay, I want to put on a self-love summit just so I could have you on. <laughs> oh man. Well, the last thing I'd love to say is that I really, I really admire anyone who's listening and the pain they've been through, because I feel that what we hate the most about ourselves is usually where the goal is, is usually where the, the discovery of our gem is and to really dive into the symbolism of all those things. My friend Anna is doing these journaling workshops my partner and I are doing together. And she said, you know, the fertilizer that makes a rich garden to grow beautiful fruits and vegetables or flowers, we need manure, we need earthworm castings, which is the poop of the earthworms made into tea. So we need to look at the yuckiness of our lives, but how can we see the, nu the nutrients from those? So like I was looking at a picture of myself pulling my hair and how I was like destroying my being because I was hating what was being. I, I When I don't like what's happening and I can't hold space to just experience the hard things, I ignore, I rip myself apart. But where's my nutrients of that yucky part that makes my soil? I, you know, we need manure and all those things. The nutrients of that is I know how to hold space for big feelings now. I know how to hold space for others' big feelings. So I, I challenge anyone to look at the yuckiness in their lives and see the nutrients that has come from that. You have a skill set if you've been an alcoholic. You know how hard it is to feel big things and, and want to drown yourself in pain. And then you know what it's also like in that moment to feel that coming on and choose to do something else, to call a friend and to feel that connection is the cure to addiction. And so we all have gifts lying in these hard parts. And I, and I honor anyone who's on this journey to discover them. And I, and I really, um, I really just urge you to ask for help, reach your hand out to Kelsey or I, and, and know that we're happy to walk you through these dark places that we've been in these shadows and, and help you get to the other side where there's hopefully a rainbow and some like a, a nice bath or a cup of tea or something. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, June, I am so grateful for all of the information and knowledge that you've shared and just also grateful for the work that you do in the world and that you have taken your pain and create and healed it into becoming your purpose. You know, just like you were, what you were saying is the things that we struggle with the most are the things we become the most equipped to teach because we know it inside and out because we've lived it. And so I'm just um, honored to have you on the podcast and to be in your space, really. Um, it's really incredible, this information, because I think that 
it all just, when we hear it, it's like, oh, there's something. And I know that people listening, you guys, if you take a screenshot right now, post it to your Instagram story, tag us, because we want to connect with you. Because if you're feeling that electric electricity of, oh, this resonates as such truth of like, oh, it's almost this massive permission slip of, okay, I don't have to be the same every day throughout the month. And I don't have to compare my quote unquote productivity. I don't even use that word ever because it just doesn't resonate anymore. Um, because we have these cycles for me, it was a huge permission slip of feeling like, Oh, I, I, I get to move with the cycles of my body versus forcing something to be. Um, and so I just, I can't get enough of it in a way where I'm just like, wow, I'm excited. Not so much. I can't get enough of it, but I'm excited to continue to learn about my body versus trying to force my body to be and act a certain way and like celebrating. And like, even the past like year, whenever I get really bloated on my period, I'm like, Oh, everything is getting so inflamed and bloated. That means things are moving. Like, oh, the uterus is getting bigger. And I like make voices and talk to my uterus. And, you know, it's it's been, and even just like learning about the toxicity of mainstream tampons. And like, I don't use tampons anymore. I, I have like period panties and I use the cup and celebrating it because there were so many stories. And I did a, 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 a like, a ritual recently where I used my menstrual blood and I was able to like do different things where I was all these stories of shame started coming up. I did a facial. I did a facial with my menstrual blood. We know that we have stem cells and other cells in our, um, in our yoni blood and we give them to our plants and we give them to the earth. And we've been, the scientists have been using, um, the menstrual blood as well as the, um, the fluid that the mothers have in their womb, they don't talk about it, but they know how rich it is in stem cells. That's where a lot of that. They don't talk about it at all. I tried to Google it. I couldn't find any articles except warning articles saying, you know, which I understood it because it said, don't do this if you're on birth control, because you'll be putting those things back into your skin, you know, or if you have an STI. Yeah. You will put it on your face, things like that. So obviously there's there's warnings to it, but I was just surprised at the lack of information around how beneficial it was because I've never in my life seen my pores so small. My skin was so tight. And I literally was like, my mom, she was, it was so funny. She's like, Kelsey, I'm really happy for you, but you really shouldn't tell anyone about this. <laughs> That's the sadness. Why can't we tell people that we're women? And my friend Blue, I did a podcast she goes by Blue Cosmic Eagle or um, Charlotte Victoria Blue said, we still hold the sister wound. You know, when we were being burned at the cross for being witches, um, we had to turn in our sisters so we could save our families. And so, you know, we something happened where we aren't allowed to gather and do this magical work. What we see now, I've studied countless native traditions. I've been to over 30 countries studying under elders and doing a lot of oral history um, journalism and listening to them, all of these traditions, ceremonies and rituals 
we can prove in the brain now. We know brain the trauma is stored in the not in the BRCA area, not the languaging part, but the sensory and visual part. These journeys, these visions, the amount of dancing and fasting, this was all to bring up and relieve the trauma. Now you go into trauma rooms in clinics of Mayo Clinic or Harvard, they're gonna be doing things with you that you'd probably do in a shamanic ceremony, but you're gonna feel more comfortable because they have a white coat on and they'll use the the neuro scientific um education and so we need to experiment you know even if someone had an sti that's already in them if they put it on their skin the birth control but we need to get intimate even with the yucky and and these these mothers you know my mom's like people can ask me about things but don't ask me about birth or blood that's the most that's who she is she's a woman and so i honor where she is and we have to take our ancestry forward because my mom's mom didn't know what was happening when she bled. She thought she was dying. Mm-hmm. My mom said, I'll show you the tampon and I'll do all this stuff. So she did progress. And then I love the story Christian Northrup tells of the when your, when your daughter bleeds for the first time, you take her to lunch with the other women and you tell her stories of what it is to become a woman. Yeah. She meets her father at the jewelry store and he buys her a pearl necklace we need to reinitiate what it is to be female. We've lost it. We still have the bar mitzvah for males. The, you know, women do it in conservative Judaism and these other initiations, but we haven't, we need to bring this back. And if we need to use scientific language or spiritual language, I'll use whatever I need to do to bridge the trust so that we can communicate deeper and heal. Yeah, that is so beautiful. And I completely agree because there were so many different stories of shame that started coming up that I didn't even realize I was holding on to of memories of moments of, you know, cleaning the underwear because I got blood on it. And my mom telling me, you know, you got to use cold water. It'll help. But while I'm doing it, she's all, but don't leave that out for your dad to see or else he'll freak out. So I was taught very early on in my first couple cycles of, yeah, we could talk about it, but don't talk about it around men. Because that's, it's like this, you know, it, it, it was just my, the way I interpreted it was, oh, this is something I need to hide because this is, a, this is taboo or this is gross. All these feelings of being gross. I just felt being released of celebrating it and normalizing it and talking about it and, and allowing it to be something that's celebrated. It, it's, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And- I mean, my partner and I, even learning, he knows when he can take me on long hikes, he'll have more energy. He knows when not to ask me to work out with him or do things because he knows I'm more prone to injury while I'm bleeding or right before I bleed. He asks me, how does it smell this month, sweet or sour? Like He'll smell it in the cup. Do we need to change our diet next month? Because he knows happy wife, happy life. We're not married, but the men know this. And then when the men know the sexual tricks too, they get really excited because they want to perform and they want the fireworks or whatever. So educating themselves, reading this book in the flow for men and women is great by Elisa Vitti. And also I'm, I heard this comedian, he's quite famous. He was saying, my daughter got her period and we did this whole party with red balloons and cake and she named her period and he made a great comedic skit out of it. He's quite famous, actually, this comedian. I don't know what his name is, but, um, and the boys were all like, ew, 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 but it normalized something for them. And it's normalizing men to take care of their women. Then you take care of the family unit and then there's balance. And then both gifts can be revealed from either's nature. Um, and then my honey loves it. Cause he's like, Oh, this gives me a time to slow down. He makes me a soup and we do, we have our own way 
of cyclically living together. And then after my period, I have a bunch of energy and I'm out and about. And he's like, do you forget from where you came? You know, you were just like curled over. And so that's like when he dies and then I serve him. So, you know, <laughs> I think that we all need to honor the cyclical way and, and males see it in nature with planting things and being gods to little, you know, landscape. <laughs> but I've really enjoyed this conversation and I honor you as being a leader of light and empowerment in this community. And I thank you for having me on. I thank you as well, June. This has been so wonderful. So how can people get in touch um, and contact you? So I am June underscore emotional eating support. June Syndesi, S-Y-N-D-E-S-I. Syndesi, www.syndesiwellnesscenter.com. Um, on June Syndesi on Facebook, I stream a live interview. So you can ask questions um, every Friday. I'm on Instagram as those handles that I told you before. June underscore emotional eating support or June Syndesi. Um, I'm doing a lot more on the June underscore emotional eating support. But I'm really interested in answering any questions, doing group coaching with women on this work. So it can be a lower price point doing one-on-one programs for nutrition, emotional trauma relief, or um, menstrual hormone imbalance health. And, um, and I'm just very excited to have met a fellow sister on the path and chatted. Thank you. Yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And you guys listening, um, all those things that she mentioned as far as her Instagram and um, being able to look at also to her free gift of non-toxic living of different products, those links are going to be available for you to access in the show notes. And so I'll be adding all of her info there where you could also follow along with her live podcast where you can interview, you can ask questions because that's so valuable being able to be a part of that conversation with you. Um, is there anything you'd like to add before? I have a great gift that I give. Um, it's a over 50 products I recommend for non-toxic living for skin, body, home, um, stress management. And so, um, I think that link is in there. That's a very fun free gift. And, um, I'm just grateful. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you. Seriously, this has been so wonderful. I feel so energized after this conversation right now. Um, is there anything you'd like to share before we end the episode? I feel that was feel good. complete. You feel complete? Okay. I'm grateful. Awesome. Okay. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Joyfully You Podcast. And thank you, June Sindesi, for being here with us. And uh, we will see you on the next episode. Thank you.